When you think of the relationship between contemporary science and belief as a Christian, what comes to mind? I mean, what do you think of? There's a lot of possibilities because the topic, in a broader sense, is a lot of different aspects, right? I mean, Sunday school, you could probably be um, like, uh, who are the great scientists who are Christians? Or who were Christians who were great scientists, right? And there's been plenty of them. So that would be like maybe a Sunday school topic or something. And it's obviously, um, you don't necessarily have to be young to appreciate that, but it's not super high-minded, right? Um, another possible aspect that is much more high-minded would be... Um, Something like uh, the question of how the fruits of science, technology, uh, affects or has affected belief, has affected the church. And um, I always think of, and I'm always loath to start s- citing names. There's a couple reasons for that, because I don't want to reveal my ignorance and omit someone who's like a really prominent figure. And it's like, and then there's that aspect of it. And then also because you invariably admit, uh, omit somebody who's really important. But I always think of Jacques Ellul, and I know Tom and I have talked about Jacques Ellul, Damon and I have talked about Jacques Ellul. Um, in 1964, he published a book called um, The Technological Society. It's a very heavy read. And um, by the way, when I say how technology affects society, that sounds really secular, right? It sounds very secular. That, by the way, is a study of sociology. That's oftentimes how it's defined. Um, but we as Christians know what society is, right? Society is a collection of image bearers. So any topic about society is automatically a Christian topic. It's a very heavy topic. I'll tell you typically what comes to mind for me when I think about the relationship between contemporary science and the church. And there's a lot of different ways to say this. I'll say it like this. The perceived or purported discordance between particular scientific findings and certain passages in the Bible. Right. Uh, I was I was very close to this when I was younger. My father is an atheist, and so I, because maybe because of my grandmother, my paternal grandmother, his mom, who was a devout Greek Orthodox, um, had a lot of friends who took me to church and so forth. And they would always engage in arguments with my father. And my father was because my father was raised by a Greek. By, grandmother, who was a devout Greek Orthodox, he had already heard all the arguments, okay? He's a scientist. He was like, in the 1950s, you'd see the guys with the, the lab coats and the pocket protectors and the thick glasses. That was my dad. In fact, he even had like a slide rule collection, okay? So he heard all these arguments, and, and so he knew them. He knew scripture, because he went to, when he was young, his mom made him go to church. And I, I so I had that sort of environment. And then there is, of course, like we were talking about, um, um, it, I would say maybe that particular topic, this topic of the discordance between science and Christianity, it's kind of a niche subject. I mean, it's not super loud out there, but it's still pretty active. And so in this particular aspect of the relationship between the church and um, science, there are three names that come to mind. And again, I, I'm going to admit a lot of people. These are just people that I have either seen speak or I've heard their things on tape or CD or whatever, um, or read their books. I was thinking of um, Hugh Ross, Chuck Missler, and um, Francis Collins. Francis Collins has a book that just came out. Um, Typically, what happens with these discussions, whether or not they're they're, uh, professional debates or or high-minded 
efforts to coalesce Christianity and science. Um, they tend to be tactical. This is what I'm used to. This is what I've seen. This is what I've heard. Um, what happens is, is that someone who um, is hoping to bring together the two or to remove this discordance, remove the friction between science and the church, will take a tactical approach. They'll dissect a particular scientific finding. They'll maybe uh, do some rearranging or reinterpretation of a biblical passage and, um, and try to bring them together. So it's like no more problem. Okay, sort of just sort of massage them together. I, they're kind of reactive. I think of them as reactive and defensive. Okay, so um, this is basically our topic for today, for the next 20, 25 minutes. Um, but I want to do things differently. And this is going to—I want to be very careful here. I'm not going to—I'm not going to try to lecture to anybody. Um, and this may sound a little bit banal, but I, I just want us to take a refresher on what science is. And I feel like that's one topic I can at least speak a little bit authoritatively on. I'm, I'm a trained scientist. My the company I work for pays me to be a scientist. So I thought we could just refresh, get a context for what, when these discussions happen, when there's all this friction, and there's a deep history here, right? And it's very contentious. It goes all the way back to Galileo. Right? There's a history here. Don't have the time to cover that, and I'm not really qualified to cover that. Um, but I've come to the conclusion, and this is very tenable in my mind, that much of the problem is hallucinatory. And people just don't even understand what scientific thinking is. And so I thought by maybe spending a little bit of time and clarifying what is meant by scientific thinking, we can maybe arm ourselves or equip ourselves a little bit with a, a, a more, uh, more facility in understanding these discussions when they arise. And again, maybe this is a little bit self-serving because this is, like I said, something that was close to me during my upbringing. But I, I think from having talk, spoken with you, um, different members of the congregation, that it is potentially a, a topic of interest. So, Oh, and then uh, for the last, this is kind of a two-parter. So the first part is going to be a discussion about science. What is science? Second part, I'm going to call an intellectual curiosity. That's an intellectual curiosity. The first part is designed to be arguable, supportable. Otherwise, I wouldn't be talking about it. The second part is you are free to accept or reject it. Okay, It's, it's um, an assumption. Okay? And you can place any kind of weight on it you want. And I just call it an intellectual curiosity. You call it amusing, but that might be giving it a little bit more credit than it really deserves. Um, okay, so for the uh, sake of both clarifying the topic and also setting up the what we call it the intellectual curiosity, I want us to imagine, or I'm going to speak through a contrived but not very unrealistic dialogue between a non-believing scientist and a Christian. Okay, and I've chosen, there's four assertions and four retorts, and I've chosen these because I've heard them so many times, okay, in one form or another. Okay, so first one, this is a classic one, I know you've heard this, right? Um, the universe was intelligently created, so that's a Christian, the universe is intelligently created. It's not a really wild assertion, it's just saying there's like some degree of harmony or order. Okay, so what's the response? So it could be a lot of different things, but something like... Um, the uh, current understanding of cosmology and life sciences, namely the Big Bang Theory, theory of evolution, are sufficient to explain the current state of things. I've heard that. I've heard people say that, right? Okay, and you don't even have to say God, by the way. Okay, and you'll get shot down. Okay, if you're in, like a real hardcore positivist, empiricist scientist, especially maybe even if you're in an academic environment, <clears throat> Um, you're going to get shot down. Just with just um, intelligent creation. Okay, two. 
Um, there are unseen principalities at work in our day-to-day lives. Okay. So what's the response? You believe in ghosts, right? You believe in ghosts? It's crazy. Unseen principalities. The third one is kind of like the second one. Um, miracles happen. Miracles happen. Ultimately, the scientist says, all phenomena can be explained, explained through an understanding of physical laws. Okay. And then lastly, and this is... This is kind of one of my favorites. Um, it's a little bit sublime, too. God offers redemption. That's the central tenet to Christianity. God offers redemption, right? But we got all sorts of problems with this. First, we got the God issue, right? So, we have to get over the whole God issue. So, so imagine we're talking to uh, a scientist who had some epiphany at some point in their childhood, and they have softened to the re- complete rejection of a God. Maybe they're a deist or something, so they kind of warm to the idea that there's some sort of creative force. Okay, we still, you end up with something like, um, if the creative force spun all the celestial bodies into motion, why would you think that he or it would offer us anything? Like, why would that, you even make that assumption? It's a huge leap of faith. And then, and also, I mean, if you think about it, right, redemption is just a social construct, right? It's something we imagine. It's It's something that we contrive or can extrapolate from social action the idea of redemption. That only has meaning in a social uh, context. It's kind of a construct. Okay, we're going to revisit this dialogue later in our uh, Intellectual Curiosity Part 2. Okay, so here we go. So what's science? Again, this is another thing I don't like to do. They say you should never apologize about the way you are presenting something when you're speaking publicly. But I don't like to offer definitions because you can just look them up, but we have to sort of offer a definition here or else we won't have like a, a kind of like a baseline for this. So um, science, and you'll get different def- definitions, is the practical practice of using sensorial information to understand how the universe works. Okay. That's all it is. You look it up. Um, that definition, by the way, I think that science is a noun. If you look, think of science as just a word, a noun. Um, conversationally, I think that the definition that most people think of when they talk about it is pretty similar to the definition we just, um, I just uh, provided for you. Dictionary definition. Um, <clears throat> but uh, as a qualifier, when we talk about being scientific, someone is being scientific or someone is using scientific thinking... The conversational, or I would say the, the mainstream conceptualization of that uh, activity is vastly different than what would be implied simply through the definition of science. <clears throat> so here's some examples. Okay. The first one's kind of silly. So you place your hand close to a flame, what happens? Right? Ouch. Okay. Hand close to flame brings pain. Okay. It's very simple. Uh, But I want to um, unravel that a little bit and use some concepts from logic and causality. Okay. So you have two events. You have hand closeness to flame and then you have ouch. Okay. So two events. But there's a third agency here. Third agency. You have a relationship between the two. You have um, an arrow, a causal arrow that points from hand closeness to flame to ouch. 
Okay, so hand close to flame gives rise. There's lots of different language. They get come up. Scientists come up with a lot of different interesting verb phrases for this. Gives rise to, confers vulnerability to, um, or just causes. Okay, it's very simple. So, question would be: um, Is this uh, exploration or the process of learning about this relationship um, does this require scientific thinking? Well, if you think about the definition, it does. It, it sort of matches the definition, right? Right. Using sensorial experience to understand how the universe behaves. Um, practical activity. It's certainly practical. I mean, we don't typically people don't unless right. You're masochistic. Don't typically put your hand near a flame. You learn that very early in life. Um, but I also, uh, this should be qualified by saying that this is very trivial science, right? This is trivial. So you can take a hamster, put it in a cage that has been equipped with a lever inside that when depressed will release a little pellet of hamster food and the hamster will figure this out and after time will grow fat. Okay, so it's just trivial science, right? It's a trivial causal relationship between things. Another example, a little bit more interesting example. So about 9,000 years ago, some people living in what's now Western Russia constructed or produced a fishing net. This fishing net was unearthed about 100 years ago. It was in not in very good shape when they unearthed it, but it was easy to sort of uh, interpolate what it looked like. You know, the way archaeologists do that, right? They sort of figure out all the missing pieces. 9,000 years ago, it looked very much like a modern fishing net. I mean, it had a crosshatch or a grid of fibers that were intersected and tied together so it would retain its shape, and it had floats and sinkers. It looked just like a modern fishing net, not maybe on the scale of a commercial fishing net, but it looked like a modern fishing net. This is 9,000 years ago. <clears throat> okay, so I'm far from an expert on the prehistoric development of a fishing any sort of fishing apparatus, right? So, but we can sort of reconstruct things. So, um, first off, if you go back in time, oh, and I should also qualify too, when I say prehistoric or, right, we're going through an example here, I'm not offering a doctrine for the church, I'm not speaking for everybody, church on Melrose, that, okay, we're a deep time church or whatever, we're an old earth or old universe church, this is not doctrinal, we're just walking through, we're using scientific context to sort of walk through these cases, this is just illustration. Okay, so someone had to figure out at some point that you can eat a fish. Yeah, I don't know when that happened. So fish are desirable. So you want fish, you've got to eat. Okay, there's fish over there. We've got to get to those fish because we can eat them and we can survive and so on and so forth. Okay, so okay, someone grabs a big rock and like kind of, um, you know, perches himself next to a body of water where fish sometimes are known to swim by and it's like a big fish goes sort of just lumbering by or whatever. And they throw the rock in and in hopes of stunning the fish so your buddy can run in there, you know, dive in the water and capture the fish or grab onto it and keep it from swimming away and then you have dinner. Um, or better yet, a spear, right? You take a spear, throw it in there. But how about some sort of apparatus that allows water to pass through but can ensnare fish in a way that they can be recovered? Okay. So there are a lot of parameters that go into making, make up a fishing net, right? You have to have, right, the, the, um, the flora that's available from which you can get fibers to make the strings, and then you have to figure out that it has to be a certain shape and pattern, and there's a certain rigor to spacing them and tying them together so that the, right, the vertical and the horizontal ropes or whatever don't just start fluttering around and the fish just swim through. And then the idea of floats and sinkers is kind of advanced, right, so you can span 
We'll have a body of water from top to bottom. Um, <clears throat> so same question now. Is this enterprise of um, refining, advancing this object, this goal of being able to possess an apparatus that makes it fairly facile to catch fish, um, were these practitioners throughout history, even though we, they're lost to history, right? We're talking about early history, the early development of this fishing apparatus. Were these people using scientific thinking? Absolutely. Absolutely. And the point here, and we could just keep going through examples, but um, the point is that craftsmanship is science. Craftsmanship is science. It's elegant science. We see this everywhere. Uh, Roman roads and bridges, Stradivarius's instruments, Viking swords, if you're into that sort of thing. This is the ultimate in practical experimentation. Now, I'll, I'll, just as a qualifier here, uh, these practices, these enterprises of refining a fishing net to get your dinner, to feed your, 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 your group, um, of refining a sword, smelting the metal, hammering it, forging it, so that you could have a sword that's strong in battle, and then could right, and then could glint the sunlight, so it would strike fear into your opponent, like right, the sword, a, Ro- a Roman sword or a Viking sword, or creating roads so that you can move, you have commerce that move around. Okay, in fact, in fact, this is a very easy point to support, um, uh, because you know, even if you ask an evolutionary biologist whether or not they're a believer, they'll tell you that it is this capacity of Homo sapiens to apply high-level cognitive reasoning to solve problems that has endowed us with selective advantage, something called selective advantage. This is science. That is science. Okay. The corollary is that scientific thinking is not new. Scientific thinking is part of who we are. It's part of who we are as God's creatures. It's the way God made us. Scientific thinking is not new. We're going to go one step farther. Not only is it the case that scientific thinking is not new, but it's probably easier to argue that people use scientific thinking less now than they did historically. So you got to use your imagination for this one. So imagine, um, and these, these scenes, um, these are not. This is not just made up. Okay, you can find pictures, of, uh, picture of the, uh, pictures of this online. Imagine there's a group, a small group of people, four or five people, um, in lab coats or more likely probably in full body suits that are running routine maintenance or monitoring a machine that makes integrated circuits. Okay, so they're right. Your your smartphone, your workstation, home, uh, your Kindle, um, what else? Your automobile will have. Uh, Integrated circuits in them, the most complicated and the largest, will likely be the CPU. The CPUs are stamped from wafers, and they will have engraved into them microscopically fine channels that can be measured in terms of widths of atoms. Um, Conductors, little transistors, billions of them, and nowadays even tens or hundreds of billions of these little things. So there are machines that make these, right? There are machines that make these. And there are companies that make machines that make the integrated circuit. So imagine this is the scene, right? You've got a group of people in full body uh, suits and they're just monitoring or they're running routine maintenance on one of these machines and they're making these integrated circuits. So the question now is just as before, were these technicians or are these technicians being scientific? Or are they using scientific thinking? And the answer is no. 
In fact, they're being paid to avoid scientific thinking. Okay? Most jobs in technology, most roles, I would say jobs, it's a little too, uh, too narrow. Let's just think in terms of functions or roles. Most roles in technology actually pay for an absence of science. They're deterministic and procedural. Okay? Watch this readout. If it says this, do A. If it says that, do B. Um, if temperature at sensor 104C exceeds 45 degrees centigrade, go to user's manual section 107.24.154 and perform cooling check or something. They're highly deterministic and they are completely devoid of any craftsmanship. There's no um, like experimentation. There's no exploration. You're not learning anything about the world around you that's practical. You're just executing. It's almost automaton. This is very typical of roles in technology. <coughs> It's easy to imagine why, right? I mean, you could imagine if you're a supervisor and you've got a crew that's monitoring this machine that's making, spitting out all these ICs, the absolute last thing you would want is to have them suddenly become scientific or suddenly like, okay, turn that knob over there and hit this button here and try and plug in that cord over there and see what happens, right? There's no inquiry. There's no, right? There's no experimentation. There's no inquiry. It's just, it's basically automaton. <coughs> okay. To be clear, so that there's an understanding here, the company that made the machine that makes the integrated circuits, they will have a relatively small, relatively small compared to the entire employment of the company, relatively small core group of researchers whose job it will be to design, improve, refine, test the machine that they're making. And for a certain fraction of their work year, this core team of researchers in their role will be being scientific, okay? Using sensorial experience to learn about the world around you, right? So we got this machine, we want to improve it, we have a functionality we want to attain, we want to refine, and so let's understand how that works. It's basic scientific thinking. Okay, so we've come to a question here. <laughs> I have that written down here. Um, it, is, it is kind of an obvious question if you think about it. I don't know if you have it in mind right now, but... Um, the world today looks very different than it did 10 years ago, 20 years ago, vastly different than it did 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago. So um, you're saying, uh, Dave, you're saying that science isn't new, scientific thinking is not new. Um, what's changed? This world is completely unrecognizable to someone who's living at the turn of the last century, right? Well, there's a couple of things. So one of the things that's changed is um, the... Uh, I don't want to say advent, but the, um, the usage of the scientific method. Okay. The scientific method, though, is a means to an end and not an end in itself, right? The scientific method um, bestows to researchers a, a way of making scientific inquiry more efficient. And so efficient is sort of an umbrella term. It's like... Um, it includes all the things that you think about when you think about efficiency. So, like uh, reducing cost, expediency, reducing likelihood of error. Um, and I'm not going to look it up. But I'm pretty confident that at some point, maybe it was a long time ago, you were exposed to the scientific method. Um, and it also has a lot of different faces. It depends on one's point of view. So, for someone who's a tactician, um, you can think of the scientific method as a set of rules, guidelines. If you are a strategist, like a very high-level thinker, you can even describe the scientific method as just a way of thinking. 
Okay? It's very, can potentially very abstract. <clears throat> so that's changed. But what has most impactfully driven the change that we see in society, without question, without question, remember those causal connections, right? Event A gives rise to event B, those causal connections. The catalog of those causal connections has grown dramatically. You could even say it's grown exponentially. We have amassed a huge catalog of knowledge. That's what these causal connections are. They're knowledge, right? Okay, event A gives rise to event B. That's something I know. That's knowledge. And you can imagine that as this catalog of knowledge, these causal relationships grows, it becomes even easier to learn new relationships. So uh, the example I want to give you is uh, the blender. You think about the blender you have in your kitchen. Just a blender, right? So, um, you know, what do you do? You get some orange juice, banana, some strawberries, whatever, and you throw it in the blender, hold down a button, and then, you know, whirs, and then you have, what's the end result? Delicious smoothie. You get a delicious smoothie. So you have this, right? Again, you just have vent, gives rise to a vent. You have processed ingredients in blender, gives rise to smoothie, right? It's the exact same thing. So you can model just about anything, really, I mean, if you conceptualize it correctly in that way, through these, through these triplets, right? Vent, a causal agency, a, right, a consequence, and the relationship between the two. Um, but think about all the um, constituent relationships that go into that process. You just take it for advantage. Never minding all the agriculture, the transportation that uh, allows you to procure the ingredients, but you have, just for the blender, you have electromotive force at the wall. If you wind conductors in a certain way and in a certain articulation, you can spin a rotor. If you attach to that rotor a blade with a certain shape and articulation, you can puree foodstuffs, and then probably most easily overlooked, and this is far more detailed than we need here, but it's interesting, is that you have to have some sort of watertight container that allows you to transmit the rotational force from the uh, energy from the motor on the outside to the blade on the inside. So you have all, put all these things together, you put all these causal connections together, and you end up with, right, ingredients, processed ingredients and blender, and then you get that, you get your fruits moving. Okay, uh, three concepts very quickly. Superstition. Uh, most people think of superstition as being sort of the opposite of science, or I'll, I'll say like the superstitious-like thinking as being the opposite of scientific thinking. Um, certainly true, especially if you equate um, scientific thinking with rational thinking and uh, superstitious-like thinking with irrationality. It makes perfect sense. I'd like to offer another possible perspective for that. Um, Superstition really very often is an unavoidable consequence of scientific exploration. <clears throat> and there's lots of different ways to support this, uh, but I'll, I'll, we'll just entertain this, okay? It is very possible, and it happen, it's happened countless times throughout history, for the most high scientifically minded person or group of researchers to reach an erroneous conclusion and do so repeatedly. And this can happen because there are a lot of reasons, but just if you think about how you execute an experiment, you have all these different ways for error, mistakes to seep into the process. You have type errors, you have model errors, you have models of, or errors of conceptualization, um, you have measurement errors. Okay, so adherence, so if you think about this historically, so 
um, you have some very well-intentioned scientists, and they're conducting their research, and they're getting an erroneous answer, an erroneous result. Now, adherence to this erroneous answer, this erroneous conclusion, including the researchers, right? We would not call them, we would not think of them as being superstitious. They were well-intended, right? And they were doing everything right, or, or maybe they weren't. But here's the thing, so follow me on this. So, <clears throat> long in retrospect, okay, adherence, this is true of anybody, right? Ad- adherence to something that is demonstrably false, right, could cause someone to behave in a way, again, long in retrospect, that looks very superstitious-like. Okay, precision. Uh, If you were a rocket scientist, do you fancy that you would describe the guidance of a rocket, uh, the the guidance system of the rocket to your 10-year-old nephew in the same way you would describe it to a graduate student of engineering? Um, from the other direction, um, Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol, a morality play. It's very well known, right? Now, when you think of A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, do you think of this work as being a treatise on the voxel distribution of electrical impulses in Scrooge's brain? Okay, and then the last one, purpose. Um, purpose only has meaning for a scientist, uh, for an empiricist, specifically if it resides within a rational context. Um, so, so, for example, hand close to flame, right? Hand close to flame is a trivial relationship that brings pain. We understand the purpose of that relationship, not in the original framework in which we learned it when we we're very young. Well, what's going on? But because of a physiological framework, we will learn when we're older, right? That high temperatures can maim us. So we understand the purpose of that. But it's a completely different framework. Um, you're out with a group of friends. Someone says, it's hot today. And then you say, what's the purpose of it being hot today? Right? You might get some funny looks. Um, the purpose of a hot day is simply not in the context of climatology, and it's probably not in the context of most conversations. Okay, so that's it for the first part. The second part's much shorter. I don't even know how long I've been going here. Oh, not too long. Um, so I'm calling this uh, an intellectual curiosity. The, the first part, first part I'm offering is being tenable. Um, this part is just sort of, you just use your imagination. Again, it requires an assumption. You can, you're free to accept or reject the assumption. Um, but um, I thought it was interesting. So that's why it's the second part. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to introduce you to something, if you don't already know it, called the simulation argument. The simulation argument. So what is the simulation argument? Well, first off, it's an argument. And argument, an argument has very special meaning in theoretics. An argument is a thing. It has very special meaning. And what is it? Well, it is a statement that has a conclusion that's true, given uh, conditions. Okay? So you can almost intuit this. Like, what would make the most interesting argument? It would be one where the true conclusion is striking and improbable and, you know, in defiance of common sense or reason, right? And where the conditions that are required to make it true are not too unbelievable, 
right? So in other words, you have two things. Oh, that seems reasonable. And then you get this truthful conclusion that is, seems outlandish, right? So, so what is the conclusion in the simulation argument? The conclusion in the simulation argument is that it is almost certain that right now we're all living inside of a giant computer simulation. Okay, so that's not something you typically think about, right, when you wake up in the morning. So that's kind of striking. Um, and then, so boy, how, how could that possibly be? There are, and by the way, this is, I'm paraphrasing here, if you really want a rigorous take on the simulation argument, look it up and go to the source, the literature. It's, there's a bunch of stuff about it online. It's, and I'll talk about this in a second. There's a lot of buzz, as I say, a lot of hype around the simulation argument. So you can find plenty of literature on it. So I'm paraphrasing here. So one of the conditions is that it is possible for a people or a sentient race to attain a state of hyper-technology, say, very high state of technology. That doesn't seem too outrageous, right? And the second condition is that a race that has so attained this advanced state of technology would be interested in learning about their past. That doesn't seem too... Right? I could kind of, kind of see that happening. So if those two things are true, we're almost certainly living inside of a computer simulation. I'm not going to try to un- unravel that, but it's actually a truthful, it's truthful logic, and it's fascinating logic. Okay. So I'll say it as a sentence, okay? Um, if it is true that it's possible for a race of people to attain a state of high technology, and if these people are interested in learning about their history, then we are almost certainly inside of a grand computer simulation right now. <clears throat> okay, what is, aside from the logic, okay, aside from the fact that it is an argument and it is a respected argument, it's a truthful argument, um, we, our generation now, I'm going to say our generation, but people, especially in the 21st century, understand the idea of living inside of a computer simulation, unlike the people that came before us, right? Because we have, unlike the people that came before us, a very powerful analogy, right? We have computer games, right? We have computers, right? Computer is actually part of the simulation argument. It's part, it's in the text of the simulation argument. It's in the conclusion. So we have an analogy for it. You play a game like World of Warcraft, you play a game like Sims, and you have these assets and you have these avatars, and some of them look very familiar to what we normally experience in our regular day-to-day world. Um, and some of them, you know, the, the personalities kind of look like people. And uh, you may not think about it like this, but it's kind of true that if there was a way to bestow to these characters a sense of self-awareness, you would have a world in that computer simulation, that game, that in many important ways is just like our waking world now. So we sort of, ha- we've had this understanding. And, <clears throat> and it may be that, it may just be, the, you know, there's a, a kind of a synchronicity to things. It may be that we have this analogy. It may be that some logician just happened to coincidentally come up with a simulation argument at this particular point in time. I don't think that they're coincidental. Um, but nonetheless, simulation argument is getting a, a lot of interest. And in fact, there are physicists at universities who are receiving funding to test whether or not we're actually living inside of a simulation. They're getting money to do this. And so, but here's the irony, and this is sort of the heart of 
the curiosity, the intellectual curiosity. It may well be so that science can be used, measurement can be used, scientific inquiry, scientific method can be used to determine or measure um, a hypothesis concerning whether or not we're living inside of a giant computer simulation. So in other words, five years from now, right, it could become the conventional wisdom, it could become the status quo of, of science that, yep, yeah, well, we're, here we are in this great uh, computer simulation because all these experiments we've tested, and I warned you ahead of time, right, that this is going to require kind of a wild assumption here, but if that were true, um, all these tests we've run, this is how we're defining simulationists, and we've run all these tests, and we've amassed all this evidence that confirms it, right? So, yep, we're living inside of a computer simulation, but it is, may well be so, and it is probably pretty likely, that even though that's something that can be demonstrated through experimentation, um, it may not be the case that we could ever figure out who is orchestrating the simulation, right? And so you will have zealots um, who are adherents to um, the simulation argument, and they'll say, well, surely, even though we don't know by empirical evidence who is conducting the simulation, um, it must be our progeny, because that's what the, basically, I, I didn't go into that level of detail, but it turns out it's our progeny. Well, way in the future, they're simulating us because they want to know about their history. You may have triangulated that in your own imagination, but that's kind of how it goes. Um, but, but the thing is, is that that conclusion would just be purely dogmatic. You have to have evidence for it, right? So you can have people saying, well, it's our progeny. They're doing the simulation. We're living in a big, giant simulation. Um, but that's dogmatic, right? We would, be, we would be left in a very interesting situation where we could say, well, we're inside of a computer simulation, but we don't know who's orchestrating it because we can't confirm it scientifically. We can't confirm it empirically. So what I would like us to do is um, revisit the earlier exchange between the Christian and the, sci uh, the non-believing scientist. Remember that guy? And uh, we're going to make the assumption now that uh, at some point, and maybe in the not-too-distant future, um, all these people are getting the liberal funding to test whether or not we're living inside of a simulation, confirm that we are. And um, so now this is widespread and has basically um, uh, become the say the conventional wisdom of the status quo of science. So, so you, the, what does the Christian say? The Christian says, the universe was intelligently created. And so what does the scientist say now? Right? The scientist who's convicted with the simulation argument says, evidently. That's right. And you say, um, uh, <clears throat> there are unseen principalities at work in our day-to-day -day lives. Quite possible. Miracles happen. What does the scientist say? Believe it or not, non-believing scientists, right? Um, yeah, because there could be, yeah, that's real possible. Right, miracles happen because there could be causal agencies happening in, right, on our world whose origin is, right, and, right, not necessarily describable in our world. I mean, certainly that's true, obviously, in a computer game, right, where you have someone who's controlling a joystick or something. And then finally, what was really a, 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 a bulwarks in the earlier exchange, in this hypothetical exchange that I've come up with here and we're entertaining, um, God offers redemption. Okay, God offers redemption, right? You can't get that past the non-believing scientists, man. You'll just get shut down. You got the God part in there. You got the whole social construct of redemption. Um, you got the fact that there's this exchange. God is actually doing something. Um, but now this is 
trivial right now because what does the scientist say? The scientist says, well, you know, especially in the context of the analogy of computer games, right? In, the, in a computer game, what happens, right? Well, the whole point is you have a character or characters and your goal as, right, their, right, their overlord, right, who, playing the game, um, is to bestow upon your character special, uh, I don't know, assets, defenses, spells, whatever, um, weapons or whatever. Um, so, so it's easy. Yeah, so obviously, yeah, God, sure. Whoever's running the simulation, offers redemption. <clears throat> what just happened here, right? And we made a leap of faith, obviously, and you're free to... St- I'm not advocating uh, that we're living in a simulation. I'm not advocating that, okay? It's just a, it's just sort of a curiosity. Uh, <clears throat> it could be something that's confirmed. But <clears throat> on one hand, we've had this uh, this contention between science and Christianity. It's caused all sorts of collateral damage. It goes back centuries to the era of the Enlightenment before then. Um, and I'm not going to even try to recapture the history of that here. It's been fairly, it's kind of depressing to reflect upon. Um, it's all the way back to Galileo. Um, and uh, it even infests thinking today. But Scientific findings are not static. They're constantly changing. They're dynamic. And I don't know where it started. I just don't know the um, etymology of the whole thing. I don't know where someone had it in their head that, hey, the Bible is supposed to be a scientific document that offers um, just the perfect amount of detail for every possible phenomena or observation. Like, where did that even come from? Where did it where was it that someone said, okay, Big Bang Theory, that's it, end of story, right? Big Bang Theory superseded this, whatever it was, a static universe theory and then whatever that, uh, co- that caused Einstein to have to come up with this cosmological concept. It's constantly changed. It changes all the time. Tomorrow could be the simulation argument or this, this, the fact that we're living inside of a simulation could be something else. But... <clears throat> Scientific, scientific thinking is part of who we are. It's part of the way we're made. Being able to use cognitive functioning to understand what's happening around us. But the conclusions we reach are constantly changing because the world is constantly changing. Um, but we sang today earlier, great is thy faithfulness. And Tom was at, um, very thoughtful offered thought that my opinion on if there was a hymn that might be appropriate, but that hymn actually was perfect, right? As believers, our relationship with God is absolutely unchanging, and God is always faithful. So, what I want to do is I'm going to leave with a rhetorical question. It's um, maybe a bit of a Sopranos ending, um, but uh, it's a rhetorical question. I'm not going to answer it. It's like 98% rhetorical, Okay. And I'm hoping that I know this is really fragmented and it actually probably went over as longer than I, I thought it would be. I prognosticated it would be. And then have um, Damon lead us out in prayer and doxology. <clears throat> when someone says, you know, the story of the creation of the Bible, the Bible was, says that the universe took seven days to make and then everything's out of order. And, uh, you know, and uh, it doesn't agree, you know, we have the Big Bang Theory and then, you know, this, whatever, the soup of this plasma soup and then the stars and galaxies form. And they just don't 
doesn't make sense to me. You know, uh, I just have a problem with that. I don't like the way that, you know, cosmology and you know, evolution are constantly out of, right, out of harmony or out of sync with all these crazy stories in the Bible. And <clears throat> so the question I would ask, I ask you, um, do you think that someone expresses concern over this perceived lack of alignment because they're interested in understanding how old rocks are? Do you think that that's what they're after? Or do you think that maybe they're looking for something else? Maybe they have another question. certainly given us a lot to think about. Let's pray together. Father, as Dave has pointed out, we are seemingly at different times assaulted by various ways of thinking. and Sometimes we, we panic. We get thrown off. Help us to trust you, to recognize that indeed great is your faithfulness how gracious you are to us. May we have a sense of your presence as we walk through the world in the coming week. May we have a sense of your spirit, your grace with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.